Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an engineering leader, analyst, and writer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, a product leader, educator, and investor currently working in the autonomous space. And this week, we're really excited to bring our first guest, Brian Shi, to talk to us about the gaming industry. It's going to be fun. Arun and I are super excited to talk to you about the games industry with our first guest, Brian Shi. Brian's a former product manager at Google, current vice president of product at Pocket Gems, a gaming company, uh, specifically in the mobile space. So Brian, we're, we're super excited to have you on the show today. Can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, your career path just far and sort of how you got into games? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I could talk about how I have played games my whole life, but maybe that's a little bit less what you're interested <laughs> in. I think uh, I know I've always been a gamer um, kind of personally, uh, but from a career path perspective, you know, I was uh, like you mentioned, I was at Google. I was fortunate enough to join Google in one of the early uh, APM programs, their associate product manager program that sort of now has sort of spread all over the, the tech industry. There's APM programs everywhere. But, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to join them very early on back in 2007. Um, and I, I didn't really know what product management was, um, you know, since it wasn't as widespread as it is today. Uh, but I, I, you know, I got to learn a lot about how to think about product strategies, sort of managing through influence, you know, working with cross-functional teams of engineers, designers, all that stuff. Um, mm. And then uh, I was there for about four years. Uh, I had the, I don't know, pleasure slash uh, sad fact that I was the last PM on Google Reader, which a lot of people are very sad when they hear <laughs> about uh, I was the mm. last PM on that product before it was killed. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, I was there for four years. I loved it. Um, I enjoyed what I worked on. Um, and ultimately I left because I really wanted to work on things that, uh, I, I was really excited about. Um, you know, I, I worked on Google reader while I was at Google because that was a thing that I really cared about and loved. Um, but ultimately, you know, be, you know, Google killed it because it wasn't important to like the core mission of the company, uh, which I totally get. Um, but there was just sort of like this like lack of alignment in terms of what I was interested in, what the company was interested in. Um, and so I, I started looking around for something new. And um, like I said, I've, I've always been a gamer. Uh, and so sort of, you know, finding a place in games was not something I th thought I would ever do, but um, it, was, it has a natural fit in terms of, um, you know, my interests. Uh, and so, so yeah. Uh, Brian, uh, just one thing for people who don't know, what was Google Reader? Uh, Google Reader was uh, an RSS reader. So it was a way for you to subscribe to blogs, basically. Uh, and you could subscribe to all these feeds of all these different blogs, uh, and then they would all show up in one place for you uh, in like a really nice, easy to use, very fast, efficient way to consume a lot of content. It was kind of like Twitter before Twitter, and it was specifically for blogs. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, and it, I think at its height, it was around, I, wanna, I think it was like maybe 3 million seven-day active users or something. So big within the tech industry, a lot of tech people use it, but but never never Google scale um, worldwide. Hmm. And so ultimately, they decided to kill it. And uh, did you uh, did you work on anything else? I, I, I want to say that at one point, you worked on Google Finance, but I may be thinking of someone else. Uh, I worked on Google Finance also, yeah, uh, after Google Reader. Um, and... I see. It's sort of <laughs> similar story. <coughs> uh, I also really like Google Finance. I like. I'm personally interested in finance mm -hmm. um, as like a you know non-professional passion, but uh, it's sort of similar story where that product was something that ultimately was not 
core to what Google wanted to focus on. And so I think they've, you know, they've continued to run it, but they have not really been um, developing it much uh, since then. Let's face it. All you need is the Wall Street Bets subreddit. You don't need these, these, <laughs> these right. tools that tell you about things like, uh, you know, prices and earnings ratios and all of that. It's, it's antiquated. <laughs> so, so, so Brian, uh, can you talk to me a little bit more about pocket gems and what they do and just sort of what type of company in the games industry, um, pocket gems is. Yeah. Uh, so pocket gems was founded in 2009, uh, and it's an early, it was an early pioneer in the mobile gaming space. So we, we make games uh, for Android and iOS. Uh, 2009, you know, the iPhone launched in 2007. So 2009, actually, when Pocket Gems launched was before in-app purchases even existed. I think that back in yeah. the day, the way you, if you, we had a, I think we had a game like Tap Jungle or Tap Store, and you could download the free one. And if you wanted to buy the premium currency to use in that game, you had to go and buy a paid app separately. Uh, and then we would credit you on the back end for that because there were, there were no in-app purchases at the time. Um, so it was, a, it was a very early pioneer in mobile. Uh, we launched several games um, that were very successful back in the sort of casual days. Uh, so Tap Zoo was a big one, Tap Pet Hotel. Uh, I think you know, those were top five grossing games in 2011. Um, and then more recently, our, our big games are Episode, which is a sort of like a interactive novel, choose your own adventure type uh, type game. Uh, and War Dragons is the other big one that we make. Um, and uh, yeah, we you know we we basically exclusively focus on free to play uh, mobile games. Uh, so I, I guess I have a confession to make. I am also a Pocket Gems alumnus. <laughs> <laughs> that's right the truth and, is out uh, yeah uh brian and i used to work together and uh the uh this is this is actually this kind of blows my mind when i think about it today but in 2011 tap zoo by pocket gems was the number one grossing app in the app store it wasn't just like games yeah that's right it was it was number one like so you think of this like sort of like this early this early market and and pocket gems was really a leader uh, in, in sort of like what was like sort of like a, I mean, it was a less crowded market, less advanced marketplace than it is today, but it's, it's kind of crazy to think that like, uh, at one point, like the entire, uh, the entire app store, it was tap zoo tap zoo yeah. was like the, was the best thing you could like, you know, was the most successful thing on the iPhone in 2011. Yeah. I think, I think pet hotel was number four that year. Too. Yep. That's it correct. Was, it was yeah. Wild. Um, you know, obviously, the, this, <laughs> the the industry has grown so much. We we would rather be number twenty now than than number <laughs> one then. I think, but um, uh, totally. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was definitely we were definitely a pioneer in that sense. Uh, and then the next big hit, Paradise Cove, and I don't even know where that charted, but it was another big hit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you, you touched on it a little bit, but I mean the the difference between early stage versus now at Pocket Gems, um, maybe in terms of game development philosophy on mobile games and how that shifted with the industry. I would love to hear about that because, I mean, to your point, right? Like, Tapsu and and all the early games, eh, the competition was a little bit less, and now competition is obviously really fierce, and there's game studios all over the world. Um, so just would love to hear, um, you know, what what you can tell us about that with it with MPG. Yeah, I think the trajectory of the kinds of games we made basically mirror the industry, like like you said, at large, right? Um, we have been forced to evolve and adapt with the changes in the industry. And since we 
have been involved in the mobile game industry since the very beginning, it, the story of Pocket Gems is basically a reflection, I think, of the story of of, of gaming more broadly, um, mobile gaming more broadly. So I think you could, you know, the first games that were big on mobile were basically these very casual simulation games that were similar to kind of Farmville, you know, or a lot of the the big Facebook social games, which, right, remember those came out like kind of just right before mobile started taking off. So a lot of the games early were, were that kind of game. And those games are fairly easy to make. They're all 2D. Um, you don't need big teams to make them. They're, they're in some ways glorified spreadsheets because, you know, you, you pay some number of coins, you plant these crops, then you collect those crops and sell them for these number of coins, and then you you know, buy these more expensive crops. And so, you know, you, you don't need a lot of experience designing, um, you know, what, what some people would call core games, like games on PlayStation or Xbox. You don't, you, you don't need a lot of experience making combat feel good or making an RPG system. Um, you know, we would actually just hire a lot of uh, really smart um, analytical people, a lot of ex-consultants who wanted to get into product. And, and that was great, you know. Um, and, it, and it worked really well. And, and I think that there wasn't a lot of competition on the at the time, right? Like um, what actually mattered the most was getting a game out there uh, and getting users into the game and seeing how they reacted to it and then iterating from there. Um, you know, those games, I think we would look back and say were relatively low quality, but they were appropriate, I think, for the market at the time. Um, but over time, obviously, you know, as more and more people... Um, started playing games and as more and more companies started making games that that bar has gone up over time and i think uh i think actually the the casual space um has been fragmented into a lot of different areas um i think some of the casual space has been eaten by games like episode episode you know is a game that pocket gems makes um it's it's primarily marketed at at, um younger women um it does really really well it's very very popular um has like over i think 125 million downloads um total at this point uh, if not more and uh you know, many of the people who, who liked casual games graduated to that. There have been a lot of sort of celebrity-themed games. There was a really big Kim Kardashian game. So a lot of people who played casual games sort of graduated to that. Um, there have been a, social casino games have been a very big, uh, you know, like, like basically slots games has been another big category that's sort of eaten some of that casual space. There are still casual games today, um, but it's, it's, it's much more fragmented, I think, than it used to be. Um, and then I think in on the other side, what we would, what you know, a lot of people call midcore, or basically, you know, games that might appeal a little bit more to people who play traditional PC or console games. Um, so those games typically have, you know, are a little more complex, like have more combat systems, you know, direct player conflict, PvP, things like that. That has also seen a huge rise. Um, and so the gaming industry now, I think, is is basically kind of split between those those two halves. Um, and and Pocket Gems is. A reflection of that so we we have this episode studio which focuses on you know um that that market but then there's also a half of the company that is focused on trying to build games that are you know more mid-core um and uh yeah i think that that is basically how the company has evolved and i think with that we've seen the costs go up uh as you might mm-hmm. expect like the, the development times are longer the number of people it takes to make a game has gone up uh the, you know, because consumers expect higher quality, right? There's there's so much more choice now mm-hmm. out there. Um, you have to make something uh, that looks really good and is really fun. 
uh, whereas when there's not a lot of choice, the, the bar is lower. So that, that's gone up. And then on the marketing side, the, the costs have also gone up a ton. Um, you know, I think, it, and that's just not, that's not true only in, in gaming, right? I think everyone has seen the rise of mobile apps in general. Um, and, you know, having a mobile app strategy is critical to basically any tech business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, there's just many, many more dollars competing for mobile ad advertising spend um, to try and get people into their products. And so, um, you know, within gaming, the costs have gone up, but then also just across the board. Um, so that just raises the stakes yeah. even more, right? <laughs> yeah, I totally does. I, I have a, a pointed question. Uh, just so, so something that I have been following a little closely and have been writing a little bit about on Techonomics is the IDFA change from Apple. Mm-hmm. And so I know this is going to be a, a general diversion from from the career and the games industry in general, but uh, definitely a poignant topic, I think. Um, what are your thoughts on that change? Um, I, I assume that you are familiar in, in trying to deal with that on, on your end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, do you, do you want to explain the IDFA change, what's coming? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. Um, so IDFA is this device identifier that Apple has. Um, so it basically allows them to you know, uh, tie data from usage across apps. And so you can use that information to target ads more specific to certain users. So one, you know, someone who might play War Dragons, for instance, might also play another game over here, or you might think that they will. And so they, they can target ads towards that person, um, either within a game or within another app or even within the app store itself. Um, so generally, Taking that away will reduce the amount of information and fidelity that you have on, you know, potential consumers that you're trying to convert into paying customers. Yeah, yeah. That's now, great. if I missed anything, let me no, know. No, that, that that's that, that's it. yeah, exactly. I think the so the reason this is very very relevant to mobile games, which maybe not everyone knows, is uh, basically in mobile gaming, if you don't pay for advertising, you don't get installs. Um, there are what we call sort of organic installs, you know, people who sort of, ha- you know, search for your game and install it or, or word of mouth, you tell a friend. But if you turn off the install, you know, faucet to your game, your, your paid install faucet, uh, your installs will basically dry up. And so it's, it's different from, you know, what you might imagine a PC or console uh game launches like where you know there's a you know maybe you work with a publication or there's like twitch streaming there's you know there's a lot of other ways people find out about pc games in mobile you have to pay for users um uh, and so this is a really big change um because everything you know in mobile gaming is driven uh off of these targeted ads so yeah i think the there's a lot of people who are smarter than me who work specifically in in um you know mobile marketing who've been who've been talking about this a lot i think the the consensus is that no one is entirely sure what will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very big change. Uh, it's going to likely be very disruptive. I think we could see a lot of uh, advertisers pull back on spend for at least a little while while they try and assess the sort of new market dynamics. Um, yeah, like how to how to better target or how to better use that ad spend um, right. that they would have spent otherwise and into other channels that might be more effective. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. I think within gaming, there there's... The theory right now is that there's two um, kinds of games that are probably going to be the most adversely effective. So the first is uh, what we we call hyper casual games. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen ads for like a very arcade looking game or something that has like a little claymation guy running around knocking people off cliffs, right? Um, if, if you, I don't know if you've ever actually <laughs> too, tried downloading too, ma- too many of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, would Flappy uh, Bird fall into that category? Uh. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe if they made it today. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I don't know if you've actually ever tried downloading one of those games. If you play them, they basically spam you with ads in the game mm. Um, mm. very, very aggressively. Uh, mm. And the those those games basically work by like having a, a, a hook that markets super well um, that is very broadly appealing. You get a ton of people to install it. The game doesn't need to last for very long. It doesn't need to retain you for a very long time because mm. um, you only need to play it for a little while. We're going to spam the hell out of you with ads and then you know, you'll move on to the next hyper-casual game that exists. Um, Crazy. <laughs> and so uh, those games make their money through... Th- showing ads, right? They, they are basically mm-hmm. ad inventory for other game companies to go and buy ads um, to try and get, you know, people into their games. And so if targeting is much worse, basically people think the, you know, the CPMs um, or the amount of uh, money people are willing to pay for ads in those hyper-casual games will go down um, by some, you know, pretty big haircut. And so it may make yeah. hyper-casual games like a lot less viable. Um, so that's one, which, you know, to be fair, I think Apple is probably okay with, like, because those, those games... <laughs> Quality they're not a good look lower. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know exactly. yeah. Um, they, they look pretty spammy yeah so so i think <laughs> apple is not upset about that um uh, so that that's one one class i think that's going to be hurt and well, then also, i think the other the, one oh, yeah don't yeah. the games like not necessarily even match the type of ad that you initially see to download the game like <laughs> yeah i've seen so, a lot of that <laughs> so that's a, that's a whole separate that's i think that's um hyper casual games generally match the ad um but, that, but what you're describing is also here. true yeah that, we, we could talk about that too um Sorry to interrupt yeah. your train. No, 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 no worries. Uh, yeah, I think the other the other kind of game that I think people think will be adversely effective is uh, games that are have small user bases, um, but they live off of very, very, very high spenders on those in those user bases. Um, so I think that the pejorative term, which I don't really like, that people say is like is like whale hunting. When they refer to like high spenders as whales, um, and so you know, if you have a game that has a small number of people, but those people can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, then your game relies on finding you know the, that one percent or point one percent of people who are willing to spend that much, which means you need to have very good targeted advertising to do that. And with the IDFA change, um, you know, if you lose a lot of that sort of granularity with targeting, it's going to make it a lot harder to, to find those those uh, valuable users. And so those games might also be um, hurt more dramatically by this as well, which again, Apple is probably okay with. So uh, I had a flashback actually to the UUID situation uh-huh. uh, yeah. many years ago when we had to do that. So like, so for people who don't know, like previously there was a device specific identifier called UUID that would allow you to basically like tie a user to a device really directly. Now, uh, Brian, like maybe you can walk me through this a little bit. Uh, but the, so like the first change was there was, there was a IDFA was supposed to be a change that would not let you tie a user directly to their device. So you didn't use the hardware identifier anymore. Right. Yeah. So the IDFA stands for like ID identity or identifier for advertising. Um, yep. right. And you you could the the key difference between that and the the UDID was the UDID, UDID. was like was fixed. I think it might be, it might be UUID on Android. I think maybe is the yeah. difference. But but they're the same thing. Uh, but IDFA you could reset or turn off. Uh, yeah. As a way to like protect your your privacy. But the UDID you couldn't. It was sort of like baked into the the device. Um, so and then so then and then the new IDFA changed. So like so it's no longer baked in the device. Now the new like the next evolution of this is is what exactly. It's opt in versus opt out. 
I see. So right now on your phone, if you get a clean install of iOS uh, before they make this change, then IDFA is enabled. So all these advertisers have this ad advertiser ad identifier that they can use to target. But um, And you can manually go and turn it off um, mm -hmm. and opt out, but they're flipping it so that by default it'll be, um, it'll be off and you have to opt in manually. And what we know I from see. the Google suits, uh, mobile defaults are rarely changed. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, it, it's... Uh... It's, it's kind of a funny thing because it's not just... So you think about the games industry, um, but there was a hot minute when I worked in ad tech uh, at a, at a high-growth startup, and it was, it was kind of amazing. Like, just, you know, it, it's... Uh, you're being able to target ads on mobile, super important for a bunch of businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those, those, like, you know, the, the sort of, like, the the incremental curves. So like what, you know, like how much you can buy, like, you know, uh, how many users can you buy from a certain ad channel and what, like at what point does that sort of like dry up uh, and how much money can you spend in a given channel and still get users at a reasonable price? Uh, all of those things hinge on sort of like, um, you know, CPM, the CPM metric that you talked about. So it's like, it would change all of that. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a massive disruption and people are calling it like IDFA apocalypse you know, <laughs> because of that. Um, so, so the which A I, now stands for apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like, uh, it's actually a pretty brilliant move from Apple's perspective because they, they can, they can push this change from the mm -hmm. perspective of consumer privacy, which privacy. they've been, you know, totally. they've been on for a while and it only really hurts. It doesn't really hurt them that, that much. They don't make a lot of their money from ad, from, I add or from advertising, um, it really only hurts like Facebook um, and uh, you know and Google, um, who make a lot more money from advertising, and they can do it all or in this like very you know consumer friendly privacy um, bent. So I think it's it's actually pretty brilliant. It's not only brilliant from the privacy angle as well, but it's it's also brilliant from the antitrust angle where they're able to also leverage this as like, hey, we're actually you know doing what consumers um, what would benefit the consumer, which is completely the underlying foundation of the Sherman Act, right? It's just like, that is exactly what they're looking for is consumer privacy um, and protections. So yeah, I, I <laughs> recent, the recent spats between Apple and Facebook have been fun to follow because of that reason. Um, they're a lot more tied at the hip uh, from a business perspective than one might think. I also thought it was really interesting that um, Apple, my guess is they're going to capture a lot of that ad spend in like, you know, hey, we have identifiers on our end that we are anonymizing, but we have this data and we can sell it to you as an advertiser on the actual app store itself so that people will come in and they might search for something. And instead of it, you know, spending ad spending like CPM in game elsewhere, you might spend it there because you know that you can like bubble it up to the top. It's like the same as like Amazon search results, really. Right. Yeah. And people, I mean, you know, that that exists already. Um, yeah. It, yeah. You can, it's, it's weird, actually. Uh, you can go and buy an ad you know, targeting the keyword Fortnite and then just put your own game above totally. and it'll show up above Fortnite. And you know, when you search on the app store, which is kind of, kind of crazy. Is yeah, that is. through iAds? Is that like a different? Yeah, it's through, it's through app. I don't know if it's iAd technically, but it's, it's Apple's okay. uh, ad platform. Uh, well, I'll bring us a little bit away from the concept of IDFA and, and some of the um, ad tech here. And, and Brian, I, I actually have more of a personal question for you. Um, so Full disclosure for folks here as well. I, I know Brian um, well, but I, there's something I actually don't know about Brian, which is, um, what is your favorite game? 
Oh, you, you can't really, you, you can't really ask. It's like asking what your, who your, you know, your favorite <laughs> child is. Uh, I can tell you some of my favorite games. Maybe the games that have the biggest, have had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. Um, and they, you yeah. know, they don't have to be necessarily, um, video games specifically, right? They can, um, they can take other forms. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they are video games. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think the games that have had the biggest impact on me are, they're pretty much all PC games because I, I grew up playing a lot of PC games. Um, so uh, the you know original StarCraft and StarCraft Brood War yes. is one. Yeah. Um, For those of you who don't know, Brood War is the extension um, yeah. on, yeah. on top yeah. of StarCraft. Very good extension. Um, I played a lot of Quake 3 um growing up also uh, oh, i like shooters in general game. yep uh quake 3 and i've you know more recently i played a lot of overwatch also love, i love overwatch mm. um team fortress 2 was one of my favorites as well it's kind of that that sort of lineage of, of fps uh i played a lot of um first person shooter for folks who oh, yeah, uh, thanks don't know. <laughs> no uh i played a lot of uh dota which, or defense of the ancients which was a warcraft mm. 3 mod um that ultimately turned into um, League of Legends, uh, which I also played a lot of. So I've played a lot of that genre as well. Um, but you know, I mostly play games socially with friends. I don't play a lot of big single-player, um, you know, console games. Like I, I actually still haven't played like you know Red Dead Redemption or Red Dead Redemption Two mm. or things like that because um, I mostly play socially. Does uh, Does Diablo Three fall into any of that? Because I remember when it came out, you were excited. Uh, I didn't stick with Diablo 3 very much, which I think okay. is this is a common story. A lot of people played Diablo 3 when it came out, didn't really stick. I, I heard the expansion made it a lot better, but I, I never really went back to play a lot of it. Um, I did play a lot of Diablo 2. I was very into Diablo 2. Um, I, I never really know if it's because the game was amazing or if it's because that was there's like a time in your life. You know, I was like a teenager and I had nothing else to do. And I wonder if it would actually be as fun as I, as I remember it being. <laughs> It is it is funny that you say that because um, I've had that feeling before, too. Like there are things that like there was like a time in my life where I had more time or whatever and I could get really into something. And like if I go back to it now, just doesn't have the same magic. It had to yeah. be like the right mix of like boredom, lack of other options uh, and whatever that sort of like triggers that passion <laughs> or like yeah, sort of like yeah. gets it there. And then sometimes you just can't go back to it for whatever reason. Um but uh, Jake, you got super excited with StarCraft. Oh, were you a StarCraft guy? Oh, oh yeah, uh, for sure. We were, we were actually playing. Um, I remember us uh, connecting over the dial-up connection and playing LAN uh, across yep. um, like a few houses down. And my mom getting so angry with me because the uh, the phone lines were all tangled up in, in the internet <laughs> connection. So we, we didn't have two lines. We we weren't uh, we weren't financially viable to uh, to have two lines, uh, which some of my friends were lucky. Uh, lucky for them, but um, but yeah, I, I loved it. Um, every mod that came on top of it. Uh, I was a big roller coaster tycoon fan, actually. Oh, yeah. Which is, yeah. Okay. I don't know if that like says something about my personality, but just like building building that business was really fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think on top of that, I'm a big FPS fan as well, so first person shooter. So um, I'm definitely more console though. Uh, I love. I mean, Halo, the Halo series for me mm -hmm. has always oh, yeah. been a fun one and so social. Right to your point, yep. Brian. Um, but oh my gosh, I, I don't know. I haven't played in years. But um, that leads me to my next question, uh, maybe for both of you, which is um, a lot of the games that you are that you like playing, none of them were mobile. So I'm curious as, as to how, you know, now you're working in mobile, you're, you're yeah, at Pocket Gems. Um, 
do you have a favorite mobile game? And then also, um, based on your experience, like why mobile um, from a working perspective? Yeah, well, I I think the only reason I didn't name any mobile games there is my formative years were spent playing PC games, right? So I think the ones that have the, had the biggest <laughs> impact on me um, were all fair PC enough, games. Uh, I've certainly played a lot of mobile games. You know, I think some for for research purposes, but but also some I you know I actually really enjoy. I think, um, well, maybe maybe we can come back to it. But I think the, you know the yeah. question of like why mobile. Um, when the truth is like when I joined pocket gems, it, it was not a very strategic decision. It was more, I, this company seems cool. Like I like gaming. Um, I think mobile games has a nice property, uh, at least pocket gems, you know, did when I joined of being sort of in, be- in between games and tech, right? It, it's a Sequoia backed company. It's in San Francisco. Um, you know, it feels like a tech company in a lot of ways. If I wanted to join, you know, EA or another sort of you know, more old school, traditional AAA game studio, I would have had to, you know, sort of work my way up from the ground and like maybe starting QA or maybe starting some other function. Like they, they didn't have product management for one, you know, back then mm-hmm. they, they do now. Um, so it was just a much easier transition, um, you know, into a, into a mobile game company. Um, and, you know, I was lucky, I think. I think in retrospect, it's been great because I think mobile is, um, you know, obviously a very, it's a huge segment. I think it maybe is the biggest now actually. Uh, within gaming and is only going to keep growing. Um, and so, you know, looking back, it was a smart decision, but I definitely, I definitely did not uh, plan it yeah. out. Yeah. Everyone's got a phone in their pocket now. So, yeah. uh, you know, they have access to any game at any time, really, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Like, remember having to go to the store to, I mean, even the new Xbox and um, PlayStation that have come out, like, you know, they have a version that literally does not have a CD-ROM drive. Right. Yeah. And so that in itself says something about just how the internet is really changing the games uh, industry. I think, um, at least from like a, consumer and actually like logistics perspective so i guess uh brian so you, we talked about like formative games uh what are you playing like right now are right you now? right now yeah i don't know no certainly uh lately i've been playing a lot of um team fight tactics which is uh wow it's actually kind of a wild um lineage for that game team fight tactics is based on something called dota auto chess which was a mod of Dota 2, which goes back to the whole League of Legends and Dota mod of Warcraft 3. Um, so there's this sort of ever-evolving <laughs> mod scene. Um, but, but you know, uh, TFT, or you know, Team Fight Tactics, or people call it TFT, um, is made by Riot, the people who make League of Legends. Um, mm. So it's a, it's a pretty big, um, you know, uh, mod of that game. I've been playing that with friends. Uh, I've been playing Path of Exile, which is... Um, another free-to-play PC game. It's kind of like Diablo, uh, except, you know, if uh, an engineer got their hands on it and wanted to make it as complex <laughs> as possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, hey, watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually haven't been playing as many mobile games lately because I don't I don't commute right now. I, I that was where actually I did most of my mobile game playing. Um, so without the commute, uh, I've actually cut back a lot. That's an interesting sort of I guess observation uh how has like like gaming for people like based from your sort of like vantage point of being sort of a vp at a gaming company like how has the pandemic sort of changed things and are you guys thinking about things any differently or is this sort of like the exact way we were thinking about the world previously is where is like uh we're made for this moment sort of thing well i i think in general gaming has done extremely well in the pandemic i mean everyone's trapped at home 
uh, and you don't have anything to do. So playing yeah. games is, is not only like entertainment, but it's also like, you know, we were talking about it can be very social. So uh, for me, I play games to stay in touch with a lot of friends. Like we all have hop on Discord and we're just chatting and, you know, playing games at the, uh, at the same time. So, um, yeah, I think Twitch viewership is up massively over the pandemic. Uh, Discord use is up massively. Just game and playing in general is up. Um, so... Yeah, it's it's a good time to be uh, both you know a gamer and uh, a games maker. Um, yeah, I I think I don't know that the pandemic itself has necessarily changed how we think about making games. Um, I think the trends that are happening in gaming probably would have happened even without the pandemic. Pandemic, I think you know maybe they're they were accelerated. I think in a lot of ways the pandemic has accelerated a lot of trends that were already in place. Um, like one example would be. You know, you, you, Jake, you asked, uh, you know, I, I noticed, you know, you mentioned that none of the games I mentioned were, were mobile. I, I think the, the like idea of there being like mobile games versus PC games and console games is, is, is blurring and will continue to blur over the next several years. Um, you know, there are, there are games like um, Call of Duty on mobile um, that make hundreds of millions of dollars and PUBG on mobile, um, which I think... I think PUBG on mobile has uh, made $3 billion lifetime already. Um, you know, and they're not cross platform playable with the PC versions or console versions hmm. of those games, but there's still a representation of that IP that exists on mobile. And so I think you're going to see yeah, more brand. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, you know, if you're a big brand, you want people to be able to engage with your brand everywhere they go, whenever they can. So um, right. I think you're going to see more like that. There are also a lot more, um, you know, very large, successful, truly cross-platform games too, right? Like Fortnite, well, and, until Apple <laughs> removed it, um, you know, was was fully cross-platform <laughs> playable between iOS and PC and Switch and, um, you know, console. So uh, I think you'll see more like that. Um, there's actually a game called uh, Genshin Impact. I don't know if you've, you've either of you have seen that, um, that I think a lot of people outside of the gaming industry you probably haven't heard too much of it, it is a it's a game made by a chinese company um mihoyo uh they had one game before um that you know did pretty well i think it made around 500 million dollars revenue but this game uh came out i think fall 2020 and is cross-platform between playstation pc and on mobile and it's i think you know it made 400 million dollars in its first two months and you know is it really a mobile game? Is it a console game? You know, it's hard. It's actually hard to say. Um, but I think a lot of people who saw it, I think, you know, just sort of initially dismissed it as like a mobile game. But but it it's like fully cross-platform playable on all of those and has, and has done super, super well. And I think we're going to see more like that as well, um, you know, going to the future. So, so yeah. I have kind of like a, I guess like a rider onto that because you bring up a really interesting point, especially with Fortnite. Do you think that there's a case where you may not push the console to its max uh like sort of sort of like you know you have more powerful hardware on PC and consoles mm-hmm. or maybe you don't push them to like the very brink because you can kind of like deliver a consistent experience across you know console PC mobile um you know like you so, trade off performance and like graphics and like for, just yeah, immersion for, for console games for something a little bit more playable across yeah so you're basically you're trading yeah you're trading kind of like 
I guess, graphical intensity and right. whatever else for sort of like cross-platform. And you're doing that strategically, right? You're just not like fluking into it. Well, I would say I would say two things about that. One is, you know, that already happens even just within consoles or PCs, right? Like there, people have different quality PCs, and so you know, all games mm -hmm. let you modify sort of the graphical settings, and and you know, even on mobile, there's I don't know how many different Android devices, or and people are playing on their iPhone sixes, right, uh, versus an iPhone ten. So um, we already have to moderate that, um, but I think what that means is the kind of art style that you choose matters mm -hmm. a lot, right? So I think if you look at a game like Fortnite and, and Genshin Impact as well, which is a very sort of cel-shaded anime style looking game, um, they both scale really well to lower resolution assets or like lower quality assets. If you were to make a like a super realistic game, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, like a Call of Duty, like very, very realistic version looking, you know, very, very, very realistic looking version game on PC. It's harder to scale those textures in a way that makes it look good um, when you downscale them on mobile. So I think, you know, Fortnite, Mi Minecraft is another good example, right? Like Minecraft, it, it's like blocky already. Uh, so, you, you know, you're not really losing <laughs> anything. Um, so I think, yeah, you, you can, you can be, you can make smart decisions about the kind of art style you choose um, to make that easier. Uh, interesting. I never, uh, well, I shouldn't say I never thought about it, but I haven't thought about it in a long time, like sort of like the art style of a game and like how that sort of like affects performance. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That's super, super interesting to to think about again. Yeah, I, I just have a question on that, which is the, the platform technology that's used to build all of this. I mean, I, I know that there's, you know, a couple of different players in the space, but I would love to hear maybe just how in your mind that is evolving to support this exact use case. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the most obvious thing that has happened is the rise of unity and, and unreal as well right um when we started pocket gems in 2009 un unreal existed but was certainly not a mobile engine um and, and unity didn't exist at all so um you know even when we went to go build war dragons which i don't remember exactly when we started but what you know unity existed at the time but it was still very early um and the licensing deals were different then the, their mobile quality was not as good as it is now um they were more focused i think on on console and pc and so um you know at, when we built war dragons we we sort of used uh you know an open source um engine to build off of well, we, we built off of cocos 3d and so but that, mm. that's all changed now um so you know uh i think the vast majority of companies, I think, um, use Unity or Unreal, um, especially for mobile development, because it just makes things so much easier to, to ship to all these different platforms. Um, Which also, so, like, in yeah. general, is going to explode just the number of mobile... I mean, we talked earlier about the number of mobile games and the competition heating up. It's like, it's not only getting... E like, the technology is just getting better and easier for people to actually make the games that they want to make. Totally. And it's also uh, this this is one part that sort of stretches into my current career because all these uh, autonomous vehicle simulation stacks, they're all built on Unity mm -hmm. or Unreal. And so, yep. like, uh, you can't escape it. <laughs> like, nope. uh, yeah. I think uh, The Mandalorian was basically almost entirely filmed in a in a single studio on a green screen with um, Unreal powering the backgrounds, I think. And, and I think... Uh, a lot of the Lion King used Unity, like the most recent Lion King. Um, so yeah, they're they're both going after film as well. That's that's Crazy. A, that's wild. Um, I always wonder, like, I mean, Unity came on the public scene just recently. I think you know within the last year. Um, 
and I don't think people give it enough credit for the different in, the different industries is actually moving into. Um, where like it just is making things so much easier to build upon. Where it's almost becoming this like just you know I, I mean I've I've seen the UI in my in my kitchen um, as someone else is working on you know my my wife works on Unity uh, sometimes, um, and and you both know her pretty well too. But uh, but that was wild to see just just drag and drop UI like changing parameters like working with camera angles um, just the amount of control you have in that where it just is more intuitive than I think I've ever seen is just incredible. And like when you're working with camera angles in a video game, why not work for camera angles in a, in a studio? So, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I was going to ask you, Jake, have you seen anything else that's like, you know, in, in sort of like development tools and things like that, that sort of rival kind of like the, I guess like just the intuitiveness that unity has. <sighs> Um, the answer might be no, by the way, that's also fine. I was, no, I, I don't think so. Not for what it's made for. Like, I, I think the majority of the engineering that I do and, and have done is, you know, the tools themselves, yes, they get better and better over time, but like what they are is actually just supporting your developer ecosystem. Not like the actual building, if you will, like the building blocks are being built up, but you still have to piece those together. I feel like with unity, it gives you a way to do that without code and it gives you these components that already exist and it like it just provides an easier interface for you to work through to build this one immersive experience and i i haven't seen that quite yet with application development is or it, anything in the consumer is it, industry it, is there an is it an apt comparison then to basically compare it to shopify for games um y yeah it potentially, I mean, with Shopify, you get a template. And so I know that there are templates for Unity as well that you can build off of. Um, I would say it's a little more complicated than that. Like, uh, you know, when you have e-commerce, it's like, all right, it, everything is fairly similar, but game mechanics can shift wildly, especially when you start to innovate. And so like, I would say on, on top of what Shopify is built, like, yes, obviously you can have a different store, you can have different marketing, you can have different products, but yeah. like the mechanics are still the same. But yep. with Unity, like, that's why it's so cool is because it's so complex. It lets you do things that just no other platform really allows you to do. And I'm sure Unreal Engine and all these other, um, you know, engines allow you to do very similar things. And I just don't have experience with those, but um, yeah, I haven't really been able to draw too many parallels. Okay. That's uh, it just, it's like one of these things where like, uh, and we've talked about it a couple of times on, on, on previous podcasts, but just sort of like the, increase in like low code no code technologies and what that sort of like means for what people can actually build and who can build it mm -hmm. uh and so uh it's always interesting to sort of see where like shopify is kind of like this low code no code solution for like storefronts right like like how does that sort of like stack up with like this in other industries and um it, it's it's been something that i've been thinking about a lot um just due to like in investments i've made and other things so it's uh interesting to hear your take Maybe the maybe the better parallel is like WordPress or something like that, where like WordPress allows you to have all these different plugins. It allows you to like build a website that can be completely different from someone else's just based on the number of like scripts you're writing, custom, the uh, number of integrations you have with like an email partner if you want to have a sign up form or like a you know a shopping cart from Shopify or whatever that is. Like that to me feels a little bit more on the same vein. Um, but I, even so, like, I think games in, in what Unity provides is like, it's, 
one experience that is like this one game ecosystem. And I think it, that's hard to replicate across something like WordPress, for instance. Yeah, often when I talk to people about why games are hard is, you know, I say, you know, games have all the same software development problems of any large scale software project. So like anything you're building that is, mm -hmm. a, you know, a lot of engineers and requirements. Like yeah, scaling hard. real time. Yeah, that's just, that's just hard, right? Um, and, and, you know, we're often pushing the limits of the hardware, right? More so than most other software, um, you know, especially on the graphics side. So it has all of those challenges, but then also you're throwing in the creative elements of art and game design, which are both, you know, they're both big, big enough disciplines to be like massive fields of study for one person to study for their lifetime. Right. And then you like mash all those together and, and you can see why it's like very difficult to like make a successful game, um, and like make a studio that is capable of making, um, repeated successful games. That's a really good question that actually or primes a really good question um, that I would love to hear more on, which is like, um, and, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this, Arun, um, but why, why does, why do games feel like tech, but like not tech? Because I, I've even being an engineer, like in the consumer space or in like the scaling, like large, large consumer application space, it's like, okay, I look at game developers and I'm like, you have real time communication. You have player v play, you know, P PVP gameplay. You have simultaneous syncing. Like these are extremely hard, like queuing problems, um, message uh, reconciliation problems. Like, and and I am like, wow, how do they do that with all this other, you know, with everything else on top? It feels so even foreign to me. And so I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, Arun, I'm, I'm curious as somebody who's worked both in in more hard tech and <laughs> some in games. What, what you would say to that? You know, it's a really good question. I think some of it is the fact that I think games, like, to work in it, like, you kind of have to have a passion for it. And, a, like, you know, games games is sort of like a, it's, it's a technology that almost everyone who is, this is going to be, this is going to sound circular, but everyone who's interested in technology, I feel like at some point comes across video games. And so you get a bunch of people who will who are exposed to it, it's it's like, you know, in some ways it's it's like seeing a movie, like it's magical. So it, it kind of ends up being sort of like this, this thing that's like highly passion-driven. And I think that's part of it. And I think that the second part of it is the mechanics of the way like sort of like game studios work is that it's a hit-driven industry Mm -hmm. And like I used to joke that like working at working at Pocket Gems, it, it felt more like, you know, being in a rock band than it did working <laughs> at like a tech company because like, you know, you well, that you're, sounds you're, pretty you're, fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to, uh, you know, what do you call uh, you are trying to you have to make a hit. So you're always trying to craft this perfect yeah. album and like sort of release it in the world and then you don't know what's going to happen. Right. So like you spend, you know, one, two years making a game and then you don't know sort of like, you know, how it's going to get received. Like, is that, you know, are your gaming mechanics, are they still in vogue? Right. All that stuff. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of like where, like why they don't feel like tech because it's not the same sort of like iterative kind of like development process uh, that you see at like a tech company. Hey, we have this product. And we're just going to keep iterating on it. And it's yeah. it's much more like a, of a linear path to success or failure uh, versus basically being in a game studio where you can be on the brink of failure and then have like an enormous hit 
yeah. uh, come out yeah. of nowhere. So that, that that's 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 my take. Uh, no, I but, think that's exactly right. Actually, I, I think uh, you know, actually, you can see it too, right? If you look at like the when they value game companies, like the multiples on revenue, they're always way lower than a SaaS company, um, and it's because all games die pretty much in, 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 you know, at yeah. some point. So you have to keep making new ones and it's hard. Or they like, evolve. Um, yeah, they evolve for a while, but you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe World of Warcraft will never die, but it's very, very <laughs> rare. It's very rare to make a game that never dies. And most games die. Um, Minecraft. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, like Arun said, like you, you got to keep making things. And just because you've made a good game before is no guarantee that you'll be able to keep doing it at the scale that you were be able to before. Um, and, and, and also the, you know, the converse is true. Like you said, I think like, uh, the people who made angry birds, they made 30 games before and they were almost out of money and then they, and they made angry birds. Um, Fortnite was, uh, I think in development since 2014, um, they'd been working on it wow. for like four years and it was a PVE kind of like co-op anti-zombie game, uh, player versus enemy. So it was like okay. cooperative fighting off zombies and they launched it and it was not doing well. Um, it was not big. And then they saw the, you know, PUBG and sort of battle royale um, genre and they put it into Fortnite and then, you know, the rest is history. And so, um, but yeah, that game was sort of dead on arrival before that. So have either of you read Blood, Sweat and Pixels? Yes. <laughs> it's required. I, I have required not. Reading. I have not no. <laughs> required reading for anyone interested in the game industry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jake, I'd highly recommend. It's actually a great book. But like one of the things I, one of the stories I, uh, who who are the people they make? I think it's Rockstar. They make Red Dead Redemption, right? Mm-hmm. I think they were talking about like how they sort of make make games and like how like for like the AAA titles, like the tools are everything. So like they spend so much time making the tools to like make the new world and all that stuff. And like, basically like once they make the tools, making the game is actually not that hard, but every time they make a new game, basically like they want to iterate, they want to like, they go to a new console or they need a new engine. They have to start yeah. from scratch with like all the tooling. Like again, so it's like, it's like nothing, like everything is essentially fungible in the game industry. Um, I was even actually going to ask about that though, which is standpoint. like the, the, sorry to interrupt. I, no, no, go ahead. Like, I assume that we're building on, I mean, Unreal Engine, Unity, like they provide a little bit more of a stable core potentially or like a stable foundation because like uh, hopefully you're just leveraging a lot of the same gaming. I mean, I can't imagine making some of the ba- same backend systems over and over. Yeah, and over definitely. Again. Definitely. Yeah, we we absolutely reuse. You'd be crazy not to. Um, yeah, so we, we okay. reuse <laughs> a lot of the same systems um, for sure. I think what Arun's talking about is also true. It's, you know, it's not the entire game, but... It's kind of like, um, you know, Pixar, whenever they make a new movie, there's a lot of like R&D and development that goes into the production process in terms of making the tools to make the visual look of this new movie, right? And it's usually pushing the boundary in some way. They're also still leveraging all their existing tech, you know, in terms of their whatever render farms or animation tech, whatever they have. So they're building off of old things, but they're all, they are also building a lot of new tooling on top of it each time. Um, I think Naughty Dog, you know, um, or, or Rockstar, you know, the people who make those sort of single player um, big AAA experiences. There, they are almost like making movies, um, and so mm. it's, you know it doesn't surprise me that like it's it's very similar um, in terms of how they go about the production process. Um, it's a little bit different, I think, for uh, you know people making free to play games because with with free to play games, this is you know another key difference, right? Is the game costs zero dollars to download, and so um, and it's run as a games as a service, so. 
Uh, whereas with a you know single player game, we're charging you sixty dollars and you buy the box. So all all that in some sense they have to do is like get you enticed enough to want to buy the box one time and they've made their money from you. Obviously, if they you know make a crappy product, then they'll lose you know customer trust over time. But they they make all that money up front. Whereas we have to go on the free to play side, we have to go pay for advertising up front. So we have to go spend money to acquire a user. And then that user pays zero dollars initially to us, and it's mm. only over the lifetime of them playing the game that hopefully they'll spend some money and and we'll make back our money and you know and then some on top of it. So it's a very different um, model, and it leads to a different sort of development philosophy. Like we really want to get something out there quickly so that we can iterate on it, um, as opposed to like wait a very long time for a grand reveal and 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 ship something. So this is this is an interesting thing because that you know you drew like a very very hard line between sort of like the the $60 package game and sort of like what ha- like you know what what like a mobile game is but increasingly I've sort of at least noticed casually that that line seems to get getting blurred like you have sort of like the console games that have like sort of like the the in-app now and things like that and uh, do you think that that's like a direct result of sort of like just mobile and like sort of like the mechanics that people getting like sort of used to those mechanics and now like you think you can actually like execute them on a console uh yeah i think it's both the um accept you know increasing acceptance of free-to-play mechanics um microtransactions right like um Mm -hmm. it's a combination of that plus uh increased ability to an expertise in running games as a service Right. It's, it's a very different skill set to run live operations on a game um, and run it as a game as a service as, as then to produce a single game and then ship it, right? Um, and so I think the AAA industry has learned a lot and experimented and, and is now doing that much more. Um, so I think it's, it's both of those things. I, I would say I even though you know a $60 game now also has microtransactions, I would still say that there's a pretty big difference between a game that charges $60 up front and a, and a free to play mm-hmm. game that, you know, the, the barrier to entry is still very, very high. Uh, for sure. Uh, I guess, and there's something else that you brought up that's really interesting, which is like sort of like the running of live operations versus like development of a game. Uh, and this was something that actually I was unfamiliar with, even actually after working at pocket gems for a little while, because pocket gems did both. They would they would mm-hmm. make the game and then they would run live operations. They were actually kind of unique at the time that they were sort of able to do that. Uh, is that is that model changed? Is it now like still do do you still have like this this divide between sort of like the operation side and the development side? Is it normal to develop a game and then hand it over to somebody? Like how does that work in the industry now? Um, I I don't think you can sort of hand it over in the sense that you you can't design a game without thinking about how live operations will work while you're sure. designing it. You know, free to play, I think, I don't think people think this anymore, but for early on, people sort of thought, you know, you can just make a fun game and then, you know, make it free to play. And like, that's not how it works at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the free to play model is like intertwined with the economy and the progression of within the game and how you unlock things. And so you have to think about that as you're designing the game. And so it's a similar thing with live operations, right? Like you, you can't just, hope that you're going to have something fun to run live operations on. So um, it's not necessarily thrown over the wall in that sense. I think people designing games definitely have to think about live operations. Um, but it's also true that, you know, the, the pe- some people excel much more in, in sort of 
taking things zero to one versus one to a hundred, right? I think like um, there is a certain skill set around live operations, which is different from uh, from building a, a new game from scratch. Um, and so I think you see some people specialize a little bit more in one area or another. Awesome. Um, well, Brian, it, it's been amazing to have you on the podcast. Uh, I don't think we could have had anyone better to dive into the games industry with. So um, just really appreciate you deep diving into some of the really nuanced pieces. To end today, Arun and I do something each podcast um, and we do a hot take at the end. And so what that means is we're looking for an unbridled, authentic, uh, quick response to, to a topic that we're going to bring up. Um, and okay. so you get to you get to be in the lucky hot seat today. Um, and so <laughs> and so the, the hot take question for you is, do you think the consumer behaviors for the mobile gaming industry will from COVID, the, the change that has happened there, will those continue to be maintained after COVID is complete? Um, I mean, I think people are going to go outside again and travel. You know, I think people will have strictly less time that they are stuck indoors. Um, so I think that we will probably see a little bit of a decline. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a crash in any way. I think, you know, people more than ever are realizing the value of games and, and probably a lot of new people are discovering the ability to stay in touch socially with friends, you know, whether they're nearby or, or further away, um, via games too. I don't think that's going to go away. Um, we, we talk in games about how, you know, people quit games, but they don't quit friends. And so, um, I think if you, if during quarantine, you, you've discovered, uh, that you can play games and stay in touch with people, like that's probably not going to change. You know, I think actually probably a lot of people have started having zoom calls with their parents more in quarantine this year. And I would be surprised if that just suddenly completely disappears. Um, after yeah. we can travel again. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it's going away. Perfect. Well, hey, I'm looking forward to finding out too. So uh, thanks again for being with us um, and we'll see you next time. Cool, thank you. Hey everyone, Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Technomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.